If there is one, thre- one thing uh, church growth strategists would tell you to talk about a lot to get your church fired up, it's giving. One thing that gets people super excited about being a part of a church is being talking about giving and giving more. Right? I know. I know. I get it. I understand that some of the stereotypes and some of the, the hurts and the manipulations that have come out because of the church tying it to money and the ugliness that comes involved with it and why everyone jumps to cover their wallets. I get it. I've seen it. Part of the reason it's a stereotype is because there's elements of truth to it, right? Like, so you kind of have to address those things. You kind of have to go, yeah, sometimes it can be awkward. But for the believer, it really doesn't have to be. For the believer, it doesn't have to be awkward to talk about giving. It doesn't have to be those things. And I, I guess we have to go to war against some of the narratives or some of the, the experiences or some of the hurts that we've journeyed with. Because in Highlands 11 years, we have walked with people who have come from places of severe wounding when it comes to churches and money and wealth. So we acknowledge that. But this morning, I, I hope that as we talk about these things and growing in our giving and going to war against some of those narratives that are false, I hope that we'll let Jesus speak to those things. And there's another sound effect, much more, much more effective than crickets, and it's this sound. Two coins. I hope that Jesus can clarify some things for us this morning, and I hope that you hear that sound and you're able to connect Jesus' understanding of what it means to give, and not just give, but give more. Because we'll see that he redefines it. And in the kingdom, and the way the kingdom works, more doesn't necessarily look the same as the way we might suggest that it does. So to set up our snapshot of Jesus this morning in Mark's gospel, Jesus has made his triumphant entry into Jerusalem. People have cheered him. They have said, praise God, blessings. He makes his way to the temple, which was to be the place where people were to worship God. And he goes in, and what does he see? Does he sit down and go, oh, this is so wonderful? No, he actually starts flipping tables, kicking people out. And we realize that this zeal that consumes him for his father's house is no joke. Like, it's real. Like, he cares about this place of worship and encounter with his father a lot. And when people are manipulating it and twisting it and breaking it and making it something other, Jesus does not mince words. And he throws people out. And then the Pharisees come, the religious leaders of the day, the the guys who knew every spiritual answer, and they start questioning Jesus' authority. And Jesus drops some truth bombs on them, and they're like, whoa, I can't, I have nothing to say when it comes to that. Jesus then tells a story to these religious people about a vineyard owner who leases his land to some farmers. And these farmers end up being evil farmers because when the vineyard owner sends his servants to collect his share, they start beating and killing these servants. And then the the vineyard owner says to himself, well, surely I'll, I'll send my own son to these farmers, and surely they won't beat him, mistreat him, or kill him. But in fact, we know the parable suggests that the farmers kill the vineyard owner's son and throw him out of the vineyard. And then, slow as they are, the Pharisees go, 
He's talking about us. How dare he? And they get all offended and get mad and they plot to kill him. And then there's this consecutive thing of Jesus being questioned by the Pharisees and the Pharisees ask, hey, Jesus, should we pay taxes to Caesar or give to God? And they were trying to trap him and Jesus drops this boom on them and says, you know what? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, his face is on the coin, but you give to God what is God's. Boom, roasted. Then he goes on to explain to these these guys who don't believe in the resurrection, they don't believe that the resurrection will happen. Jesus says, here's your problem, guys, who are supposed to know everything about the scriptures. You know nothing about the scriptures, and you know nothing about the power of God. Boom, roasted. Then you have the most important commandment question. Of all the things that are most important to do, what is most important? Jesus says, the Lord is one. And you're to love him with everything you have and love your neighbor as yourself. Boom, roasted. And then, after all of this, these people are grinning from ear to ear as they're hearing Jesus' teachings destroying the religious leaders. Now, here's the thing. Sometimes in ministry world, you kind of think, oh man, because people were listening with great delight, that means they loved hearing what Jesus had to say, and so that should be the natural response for everyone else. Here's the thing. I'm not so sure they were delighted in Jesus' teachings. I think they were just glad to see people getting put in their place. Like, I'm, I'm pretty convinced, because obviously you know the crowd turns on them and all this stuff happens and nobody cares, and Truly, I think these people were more delighted that the Pharisees were being shut down than that God was among his people speaking. And so sometimes I think maybe that's what we like. And it's weird. It's this weird sickness in us that likes seeing people put in their place, but not us. Like, we don't. <laughs> we put in our place? No. No. But the truth is, after all of this, Jesus in this exhausting encounter. I can't even imagine how exhausted he was. He summarizes the religious leaders this way in Mark chapter 12. Beware of these teachers of religious law, for they like to parade around in flowing robes and receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplaces and how they love the seats of honor in the synagogues and the head, at, and the head table at banquets. Yet they shamelessly cheat widows out of their property, and then pretend to be pious by making long prayers in public. Because of this, they will be more severely punished. Jesus takes aim at a group of men who hide their love of money and their greed under their long robes and even longer prayers. See, we can do the outside show. In America, that is like our thing. We love for the outside to appear excellent. But see, we know that because of the gospel writers, Jesus knows all men's hearts. And so he can see that one of the things, one of the marks of the people of God is to care about those who are the most defenseless people on the earth. And one of those groups are the orphans and widows. And in Exodus chapter 22, you must not exploit a widow or an orphan. And Jesus has said that the people who were supposed to be responsible for teaching this were guilty of that very thing. Verse 23 says, If you exploit them in any way, and they cry out to me, then I will certainly hear their cry. 
their lack of concern for either of these groups shows that their worship was placed somewhere else. And I don't have to guess where that worship really was placed. And it was for themselves. See, if we're honest, that's really who we worship when we want something, right? Like, we say, Jesus or God, we're going to worship you, but we're going to throw your name into the basket so that we can get this other thing too. Like, that's what we do. We use Jesus as a means to an end when we'll see that Jesus is saying, there are, I'm not a means to another end. I'm the end. I'm the beginning, and I am the end. There is nothing more than life with me. And so Jesus exposes all of these things, that their fortune and their well-being was their top priority. And because of that, they covered up with the robes and the long prayers and the perfect church attendance and the perfect sayings and the perfect readings and the perfect things and the seats, and they covered it all up. But because we know Jesus knew what was in all men's hearts, he saw right through it. And so after all of this, Jesus sits down. And he happens to sit down right next to these temple offering boxes. And so we know from historical Jewish documents that the te- in the temple, there were these boxes. There were, probably, there were 13 boxes set up with little trumpets on the top. Not really because they played music when you drop money in, but because of security reasons. That's really why they suggest. Wide at the top, skinny at the bottom. You can get your hand in, but you can't get your hand all the way down. So security and all this different stuff. And so there's 13 boxes laid out. And some of these boxes are for specific sacrifices and specific gifts that the priest needed to be there to administer and see and receive. But then there were other boxes, what would be considered free will offering boxes. And Jesus took the time after this exhausting encounter with these religious know-it-alls and he sat down and he people watched. Like, I like to people watch. But you're thinking, Jesus, this king of everything, creator of all things, sitting and watching his creation hustle and bustle through the temple. Like, I wonder if there were elements to the temple that Jesus recognized, and he was like, oh yeah, that reminds me of my father. That reminds me of my father's house. That reminds me of my dad. I wonder if there were things in the temple that had been set up because of religious traditions in the hearts of the evil men running things, if he was like, that will not be there. That won't be there either. Because, you know, in the very next breath, after this encounter, Jesus actually says the temple is going to be destroyed. So there's something about it that Jesus saw, something that, that was also understood that, man, this something's not right. But as he watched the people come into the temple and give, Jesus, people watching, his own creation, knowing what's in all men's hearts, I wonder if he heard the thoughts that were motivating some of these gifts. Were these people coming with their gifts thinking, I hope this gets me that bigger lot of land. Like if I put the right amount into this bucket, I hope it gets me the lot of land I've been asking for. God is a genie, vending machine. I hope God notices me putting this this gold into this bucket because he sure owes me. Right? We think that. What about this one? I'm going to give because something has to deal with my guilt. I feel so guilty if I could just do something. God, I'm doing this. Help the guilt go away. I hope this makes God happy 
by putting this in the box. Because I know what I did last night was not good. Right? I hope that this gets me a huge break on my taxes. Bloop. Right? That's what we think. I hope this gets my priest off my back. You see me do it? Hold on. Oh, no, no, I already went in. I got to pretend like I put something in. You do that when you're tipping, tip jar at the coffee shop. Oh, you got my dollar. You're still not looking. I'm floating around with my dollar. Now you're looking. There it goes. Okay. Oh, at least they saw me put the tip in there, and they won't think I'm an idiot. I hope people hear about how much I'm giving. And then, out of the corner of Jesus' eye, the last free will box offering, he sees a widow approach the box, and out of her heart, he simply hears, I trust you, God. I trust you. I trust you with everything I have. I'm going to put all that I have in here. I trust you, God. At this moment, I would, I would assume Jesus would look up and let the disciples go, Did you hear that sound? That was the most amazing sound I've heard in all of this place. And this is where the disciples were like, Yeah, yeah, we, we heard it, Jesus. We heard that. Yeah, what is he talking about? But Jesus' response to two coins falling into a box is one that is amazing because in verse 43 he says, I tell you the truth. And anytime Jesus starts with this, we need to be paying attention. I tell you the truth. This poor widow has given more than all the others who are making contributions. For they gave a tiny part of their surplus, but she, poor as she is, has given everything she had to live on. Here Jesus isn't slamming wealthy people. He doesn't make anyone seem to be a bad guy. He simply redefines what more looks like in the kingdom. Now, I, this is again where the disciples would be scratching their heads. I imagine Peter leaning over to James saying, I am so glad this son of God thing is working out for him because mathematician he is not. <laughs> I heard that, Peter. Sorry, Jesus. But seriously, you did just say that she gave more than anyone else in here. Did you not see the guy swimming in his ox cart full of gold coins with his top hat on? He's swimming around in it. How is that more than that guy? Either you're not good at math, or your definition of more is different than mine. And if there was any time in history that Jesus would boop someone on the nose, feel like that might be a moment. Because Jesus, if all of his words lead us to eternal life, he knows. And he knows more than we do. 
And his definition of things may not be like ours, and we're the ones who have to wrap our brains around his words, not vice versa. We don't get to tell Jesus what to say. He actually says it, and we have the uh, opportunity to either respond to it or reject it. And so as he's teaching, what seemed insignificant in the world's eyes, in God's eyes, there was much more going on in that room where the temple ledger may not even have recorded her two pennies, the words that will last until heaven and earth pass away record this poor widow's offering. Where the ledger may not have mentioned it at all, the words that lead to eternal life have told this story for generations and generations and generations and helped people understand what does it mean to give and what does it mean to give more. Jesus' words, not like ours, he redefines things. The kingdom flips things upside down, and as his people, we do scratch our head. But at the end of the day, we say, Jesus, you're right. And if I'm not seeing it, you have to help me see things your way. What a dangerous prayer to pray, right? What a very dangerous prayer to pray, which is why we may or may not like praying it. In this temple... People were giving what they could spare. And that's not a bad thing in and of itself. Jesus isn't slamming anyone in these. He's just defining more. This widow spared nothing. Others gave from what they already had. This widow gave out of her need. All that she had to live on. The sound of those two coins dropping into that box were a confession, a declaration of who she trusts. Our giving declares who we trust. It's about as simple as I can say it. To my children, why do we give? Because we trust Him. We trust God to provide. We trust Him with everything we have. We trust Him with our entire lives. That includes our time. That includes my, my, my money. That includes my abilities. That includes my relationships. That includes everything because Jesus asked for everything. The same description is given of the woman who busts up the religious guy's party and pours out this big jar of perfume that is super, super expensive and would have far outweighed those two pennies. But Jesus says the result is the same. Zacchaeus, he says, I'm going to give away half of everything I have if I have to, to make things right. And Jesus says, this guy gets what it means to be in the kingdom. All the amounts were different, but the motive was the same. God, I trust you. This is the uniqueness of what it means to give and the fuel for why we give. What fuels these people's giving matters more to God than the amount. Generosity or our giving is something that is done, not something that is done to get something in return, which is kind of the way we treat God with the vending machine concept, the genie concept. God, if I do this, you'll do this. If I scratch your back, you'll scratch mine. If I do this, if I do this, you got to pay attention to me, what I'm doing, because look, if I put in a monetary seed, I'm going to get a monetary blessing. You don't know that. 
We can't twist God's arm. That's why the amount is not as important as the motive. God's looking at the heart. And our conversation is, God, I trust you, which is why I give. I trust you. Being a given person, time, talent, money of yourself, we believe that God has us when we give of any of those things. And here's the deal. If you give of your time and you have nothing to show for it, God knows you gave of your time. Is that enough? If you give of your abilities and someone rejects you, is it enough that God knows you gave of your abilities? If you give of your money and somebody misuses it, because I know that's what we like to know. We're like, if I give this, they're going to buy booze with it, and I don't know if I can trust. If you give of your money and someone misuses it, God knows you gave. Is that enough for you to give? If I give of myself and it gets thrown back in my face, do I know that God knows? And is that enough? We give because we trust him. So what are we supposed to do with this today? What do we do now? Because if Jesus pulled the disciples in close to teach them in this moment, that means it's a moment for those who will follow him to pay attention to. If he pulls the disciples in, we are to hear and we are to grow and we are to go knowing this, somehow figuring out how to put it into practice. That's what the scripture is for. It's to be listened to and obeyed. There are many times that you and I can get motivated to do a generous thing. Somebody uses the right combination of words, they use the right combination of music, they use the right combination of emotion. You can just give everything away and then be like, what did I just do? You know, Paul has a very simple strategy. And this isn't to say that some of you won't be called to give it all away. Because sometimes he asks for it. But Paul had a very simple, practical strategy that can cause you and I to begin to facilitate an eagerness to give and an eagerness to be generous. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, he's wrapping things up. And he says this, Now regarding your question about the money being collected for God's people in Jerusalem, you should follow the same procedure I gave to the churches in Galatia. On the first day of each week, you should... Each put aside a portion of the money you have earned. Don't wait until I get there and then try to collect it all at once. I love this. The simplicity to beginning to be generous. Just set aside a portion of what you earn. Be strategic. I know there's sometimes we're just like, but I don't have enough and I don't do that. Just, Paul's saying, just set aside a portion. And when I come, don't freak out and be like, oh, I, been, I should have been putting away a ton. No, no, no. no, he's just saying, be strategic. And decide upon that amount you want to be generous with. See, at Highland, we really don't want people to be emotionally evoked to give. Now, yes, you can be, and God uses those moments. I get it. But to be a people who are prepared and a people who are, who are eager, those are the things that God is going after the heart of people. And why we give is very important, and it is, as has been already said from this platform, we give because God has given everything. And it is an act of worship. It's not a break in our worship. It is an act of worship. And acts of worship declare who we trust. 
Now, I know that some of us can get all excited and we just do all this stuff, and then some of the key is just pace. Um, I want to show you guys a picture. I don't know if you guys know who um, Derek York is, but this guy, uh, and uh, did I send that picture? Good, there he is. Uh, That guy in the green shirt had this plan set aside in his head and in his brain before he even ran the Boston Marathon. And that was, I want my children to see me on television, and I'm not a good runner or sprinter, but I know for me to be on TV, I gotta be out the head of the pack for a moment in time. And so there's this article written about him that that was just hilarious. So it said, meet the man with enough guts to yell out, on your left! to the eventual winner of the Boston Marathon, and enough stupidity to shun every single marathon pacing strategy you've ever heard. For a glorious five minutes and 30 seconds, a dad from Fort Worth, Texas, led the Boston Marathon. For a miserable two hours and 59 minutes, Derek York suffered to finish it. That was horrible. York cried after crossing the finish line in three hours, four minutes, and 57 seconds. He let out a few audible groans before getting a water bottle. It's the reaction of a guy who ran one mile in four minutes and 38 seconds, close to the limit of his aerobic capacity, then had to trudge through another 25.2 miles in the rain. On paper, York's race was a tactical disaster. 3,571 people passed him. He ran his last 5K nine minutes slower than his first, and he finished more than 30 minutes slower than his personal best. See, sometimes we do. We get all excited, and we run out, and we burn out. And I think there's some normalcy in the day-to-day that Jesus cultivates generosity in the moment by moment, the day by day, learning what does it mean to grow in my eagerness to be generous. Several years ago, we heard from a speaker, and he, men- he mentioned the growing and never resisting a generous impulse. When you sense generosity, don't squash it, but don't resist it. Be eager to give. It is the mark of those who know Christ has given all to us. Don't get all crazy at the last minute. Think of ways to contribute. Find ways to allow folks to give and cultivate an eagerness to give. Now, how do we do that? And Paul also addresses this in his second letter to the Corinthian church. In chapter 8, verse 9, he says, You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich... Yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. As we close our time together this morning, this is a story that does cause us to look at our own hearts and wonder how and why do I give. But truly it is a mark of the gospel of Mark. This is the last encounter, public ministry efforts that Jesus has before the passion starts happening. 
His road to the cross is happening. And it bookends, Mark chapter 1 starts with Jesus' call to the disciples, hey, come and follow me. Lay everything down and follow me. And it bookends with this widow's story of her giving everything and saying, I trust you, God. So it is this common theme through the gospel of Mark that discipleship or this full devotion to Christ is not fragmented. It's not areas of my life that I give to him. It's all of me that I've handed to him. Why? Because he gave everything. Jesus did not stop when it got hard. Jesus did not give up when it was like, oh, no, I'm just going to withhold a little bit of me, and then I'm going to give more, kind of most of me, but the rest of me, I'm going to put over here that doesn't feel the nails, that doesn't feel the cross, that doesn't feel death. I'm going to do the other stuff, but not that. This widow's story is a pointer, one where she laid her livelihood down, Jesus laid his entire life down. When this woman put those two coins into that box, it was a, it was a testimony to the, I trust you for today, God, and if I close my eyes and I happen to wake up tomorrow, because tomorrow is not promised, if I happen to wake up tomorrow, I will trust you again. I will trust you with everything I am tomorrow. Today, it was tough, but I trust you. Giving happens to be a way that, yes, we do loosen the chokehold of the almighty dollar. When we give, it does benefit those that we give to. But giving and generosity for us comes from the place of recognizing that Jesus emptied himself on the cross. Nothing was left. For the believer, giving declares who we trust. At the end of the day, where have we placed our faith? Jesus made it possible for anyone to give because he invites all to trust him. When the gift size isn't the measure, the playing field becomes level. Where the ledger keeper may say, that's not even worth taking note of, Jesus says, this woman's gift will be talked about until heaven and earth pass away. The kingdom looks different. It works different. It operates different. It frees people to be generous. It frees people to serve God without fear. And out of love, we serve, we give, we love, we lay our lives down because Jesus did those things first. We don't do those things so we get Jesus' love. We do these things because he's already given it to us. Fully, unreserved, unashamed. Like, bore himself naked and abused and beaten and mistreated and lied about on a cross so that sinful, rebellious people who are stingy and prideful and arrogant and argumentative and hateful and mock God could have a way home to him. As he sat and watched those people come into the temple where he knew the worship of God would go on. And he heard their heart cries, I trust you, shouted louder than any other declaration. That's what we're invited to when we give. It is a declaration, it is a statement that says, God, I trust you. Take these two pennies, because I believe that you're my provider. Use these things to make a way home for others. I don't know how you want to use it, but I know that I trust you.
Giving says more than I support an organization or a person. Giving says, God, I depend on you. And it is this kind of giving that goes to war against our unbelief, our idols of money, and our struggle to find security in all of our stuff. Two coins brought a smile to the face of the Savior of the world. Do we trust him? This morning we'll include our time in worship, but we'll also have some folks standing over to this side of the room who'd love to just pray for you if that's what you're, where you're at, what you need. Um, I'll be standing over here. If you're one who's like, I don't even get this whole Jesus giving his life, we can just start the conversation. But I do know that when we trust him, we're moved to respond. And I would say, don't squash that. Father, we love you, and it's in your name that we are asking that you would free us from the grip of the things that we love more than you. Jesus, you have to be the one that brings the rescue because we can't do it on our own. We can't muster up a kind of generosity that is earth-changing. We can't muster up uh, an eagerness on our own that will go on and grow and cause the world to look different because we're just not you. You are you. And would you go to our hearts? Would you not let us allow the things of this world to dictate whether or not we're generous? Would Jesus be the reason we want to give and we want to give more? It's in your name we pray.